Well, let's turn one more one more passage this morning to Philippians, Philippians chapter four, verses nine, verse nineteen through twenty three. The last verses in the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verse 19 through 23. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you especially those of Caesar's household, the grace of, our, of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. The word of the Lord. I'm going to preach to you this sermon. This is uh, the last sermon for Philippians, but I'm going to reserve the right to come back to verses 10 through 18 in the future. Uh, I'm working on some sermons. I just want to finish some sermons so that I can bring those to you later. So I'm going to finish up right now and put a pause, and I'm going to come back to verse 10 later and hopefully look at what it means to be content and what it means not to be content a little bit later. But for right now, let's look at this this verse here in verse 19. It says, And my God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And that's the first point. That's the verse for the first point is this. The greatest promise. This is the greatest promise in all the Bible. My God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Because in this one promise, all other promises are found. I found it described sort of like this. Uh, There's a story of a man who put a large Christmas gift under a tree. Very large Christmas gift wrapped up in a be- in beautiful paper and with a really wonderful bow on the top. If it was you, if it was me, we would be going, oh, that's the only gift I get. Well, it's pretty big, but it looks like it's the only gift I get. But when you come for Christmas and you take the bow off and you take the wrapping paper off and you take the lid off, the box is full of all kinds of other gifts on the inside with bows all wrapped up, boxes all wrapped up for you to take the bow off, unwrap the paper, and there's all these, all these wonderful gifts in this one box. And that's what this promise is like. It's this great promise. And all the other promises that are found in the Bible are found in this one promise. And so as we go through this box, after, as we look at this promise, we open up another promise and we find all these other promises of God fit together and glued together. They cannot be separated From this one great promise. So what do you need today? Here's the promise. The greatest promise. My God shall supply all your needs. Do you have a temporal need? Well, Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, Give us this day our what? Our daily bread. Do you have a temporal need? He says, ask and you shall receive. Do you have a spiritual need? Do you need a Savior? Well, Jesus tells us, John 3, 16, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you need strength to carry on? 
Philippians 4.13, I can, Paul says, do all things in Christ, the one who infuses me with strength to carry on. Do you need a promise right now about anxieties and cares? Now, we've looked recently at Philippians 4, 6 through 7. What does it say? Be anxious for nothing. In everything, bring every petition to God. Bring it to Him in prayer with thanksgiving. And God will give you His peace that surpasses all comprehension. We could go and look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, where we're to cast all our cares on Jesus Christ who cares for us. Some of us need to know. I think this is the one that I need to know and remember most of all. Um, When life is upside down and I don't know what's going on in it, does somebody know what's going on in it? (laughs) Well, Romans 8, 28 tells me that somebody knows what's going on with it. God causes all things, all the things. Sometimes we sit there, God's going to work through that thing. (laughs) God's going to work through that thing. That's bad. That's a pretty bad thing. He's going to work through that thing. To bring about, uh, work things all together for those, the good of those who love Him? Do you need assurance of your, your salvation? Go to John chapter 10. Jesus said, My sheep know my name. My sheep, I call them by name. My sheep have eternal life. My sheep will never perish. No one can snatch my sheep out of my hand. We have all of these promises in this one great promise. My God shall supply All your needs. This brings us to the source of the greatest promise. The greatest promise is from the greatest God. Did you notice what Paul calls God there? He says, and my God. Now, every time I see that, I just want to say, no, it's not a God. It's not a God. It's not a God of um, among all the Greek gods. You know, Evan Evan, uh, enlightened me as he was going through the classics about all these gods these men make up in their own minds, and they're just a little bit better than men. (laughs) They're just a little bit better than men, not really too much better than men. And so the Apostle Paul in Acts 17, he goes to Athens, and he's observing all these objects of worship, and there's all these idols. There's an altar there to a God that's not there. To the unknown God, it says. But we're not worshiping an unknown God. We're worshiping... I love to put it in the terms of our confession, the one true and living God. He says, my God. And when when he says my God, he means the, the God of Israel. God has determined to explain himself or reveal himself through Israel. God came to Abraham, called him out of his idolatry, and he gave him promises. But one of the promises is that he would have a son, and that son's name was Isaac. And through Isaac, the promise went to his son Jacob. And then Jacob, all of Jacob's family was brought to Egypt through Joseph, who was sold into slavery. And so they're brought into Egypt, and Joseph gives them the place called Goshen to grow. And while they're there, 2.2 million of them came out of Egypt with this deliverer called Moses. And they were brought out by God's mighty power. One commentator put it like this. He said, never has ever there been a nation literally lifted up and taken out of another nation like this before. They're out. They go through the Red Sea. They go to this place called Sinai and God gives them the law. And our author, Paul, he loves the law. We studied that in Philippians 3. He was Saul of Tarsus, and he loved the law. He was a son of Benjamin, one of those sons of Jacob. He was 
a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and he was blameless before the law. But he had to come to grips that he had misinterpreted the law. He had to come to grips that he had missed. And and Stephen explains this in Acts 7. All of them were looking for a king who would put their, their foot on the neck of Rome and set them free from their earthly oppression. And so every time he says to the people there, and Saul was there, he says, you have missed the Messiah. You missed Joseph. You missed Moses at first. And the prophets have been telling you about a Messiah who's coming and you crucified him when you should have worshipped him and loved him. They put Jesus to death. They missed out on who he was. They called him a wicked man, a blasphemer. And who in the world could ever be put to death? I mean, uh, be anything but accursed who's dying on a cross. He had to come to grips with the fact on the road to Damascus that he put to death an innocent man. He had to come to grips with the fact that the law and the Psalms and the prophets all teach about Jesus. Jesus wasn't dying for his sins. Jesus was bearing the sins of all those he would save on that cross. He had to see that God was working in all of this and punishing the sins, his own sins on the cross. He had to see that this worst travesty of justice that's ever been perpetrated on in all time... This innocent man was brutally beaten and he had not done anything wrong. On the earth, on the court, on the earth, all the men were getting it wrong. In the court of heaven, God was sitting at his desk, at his bench, and he was getting it right. He was saying that sin is worthy of death. The wages of sin is death. And he was punishing sin, our sin, on Jesus Christ. And so out of this hatred and envy and jealousy, God took their sin, our sin, their evil, our evil, put it on his son so that we might be saved by faith in him. Paul says, my God, the God of Israel, through faith in Jesus Christ, he puts no confidence in his flesh. He puts no confidence in his own abilities and all his advantages He puts all his confidence in Jesus' active obedience and passive obedience throughout his whole life. Why does he say, I'm the worst of sinners? He, you know, I say I'm the worst of sinners, but probably Paul's got me beat. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't stood by and watched somebody be stoned to death. Paul felt it. He, He missed. He was a expert in the law and he missed what it was all about until he had it explained to him that the Messiah would come through the seed of Abraham. My God, the God of Israel. He says, my God, we look down at verse 20, my God, the one who is to be glorified forever and ever. Look at verse 20. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, this is one of those things that just we don't do this. We don't let people do this in their papers. If we, we give a class and we say we want you to write a paper, we don't let people pray in the midst of their papers, do we? <laughs> do we do we do that? When you turn a paper in for class, you don't get to pray in the midst of the paper. You don't get to do a doxology in the middle of the paper. You know, this is a paper. <laughs> but see, this is Paul writing to the Philippians, and all of a sudden he just burst out in doxology. In the middle of a letter, now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. And if you go and you look at Ephesians, three times he talks about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And while he's doing it, he says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. 
<laughs> and then sometimes he'll start praying. And if you go and you look at what con- con- the confessions of Augustine are, you'll find that he's doing the same thing. He's, he's telling you about his life, and then he starts praying and saying, Whoa, it's me. Look at what I was like before I was a Christian. And then he starts praising God. And this is what is going on here. And so we see as Paul is talking about this God of Israel, this is a God of glory. This is not a man who um, writes letters that are dry as toast. Right? This guy's heart is on fire and he's full of joy and he's full of sorrow sometimes as he reflects on God. And you and I, we, he, we, we need to gush like him. He gushes out adoration to God in the middle of the letter. You and I, we can't add glory to any glory to God. Um, he has infinite glory. It's perfect glory. If you, add, if you could add something to it, um, it wouldn't be perfect. But we sure can adorn it. We sure can, if, if I was a doll and this jacket was made for these pants, we sure can put the jacket on God and make Him look glorious in the eyes of others. That was what we were practicing last night. To sing words that would put glory, if you will, like a jacket on God. General Revelation tells us that the, in Psalm 19 that the heavens are declaring the glory of God. The heavens are saying, I am because God is. Sun, moon, and stars. I am because God is. You know, I come to the end of Job. And every time I come to the end of Job, I always love the little part about the ostrich. Do you all know about the ostrich? An ostrich, you know how fast an ostrich can run? 43 miles an hour. Outrun a horse. I think, man, that's really cool. But you know what ostriches, they don't have any sense at all. They're t- they, don't, they don't have any sense. They walk around. Sometimes they may walk around on their eggs and kill their babies. They ain't, they ain't, let me put it in slang. They ain't got no sense at all. And are you and I, are we going to walk around today and are we going to let an ostrich glorify God with, by instinct when we have minds and wills and emotions and we're supposed to give our hearts to God and, you, and outdo all creation? You, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do all to the glory of God. That is your command. We have been bought. If you've been bought with a price of precious blood, then you do not belong to yourselves. You belong to Christ. Therefore, you are to glorify God with your body. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 and 4 says this, For this is the will of God. What? What is the will of God? That is your sanctification. And then he spells it out. Abstain from sexual immorality. And then he says how to do it. He says that each of you know how to possess this body, this this body of yours in sanctification and honor. You and I use our bodies for the glory of God. Third was we talk about this great God from whom all this, this great promise comes. He's a God of grace. And I will touch this very quickly. We end with a benediction, verse 23. Every service we have a benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. We begin with a salutation. Remember the salutation? May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father be with you. We start our service with grace to you and peace from God our Father. And we end with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what is grace? Well, it's something we don't deserve. In fact, you know... As, as you, as you're, when you're little, they tell you that grace is unmerited favor. Well, as you grow up, you learn that you it's it's sort of like demerited. 
we don't deserve any of it. We've done things to deserve nothing. It's not just unmerited. It's We've done nothing to deserve any of it at all. And yet He gives us grace. He raises us up. He lifts us out of our misery and out of our sin. He lifts us up from the judgment we deserve. And that brings us to the third point. We have the greatest promise from the greatest God who meets our greatest needs. I'm going to give you three needs this morning. First, our greatest need. What is our greatest need? Well, our greatest need is to have God's wrath removed from us. Now, we could turn, if you want, to Psalm 90, but I would just say, listen to me carefully. In Psalm 90, the title of Psalm 90 is God's eternity and man's transitoriness. Man is like a puff of smoke. God is eternal and we are brevity. These things are explained in verses 1 through 6. But when you come to verse 7, it says this. It speaks of the wrath of God. Verse 7, For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury? This is in verse 7. This is in verse 9. This is in verse 11. We see the reality of God's wrath against us. Now, um, you know, I, I, it, it doesn't seem to ever go away. Every other week or so, I seem to hear somebody say, yep, the God of the Bible in the Old Testament is a God of wrath. God in the New Testament is a God of love. Y'all ever heard that? Never goes away, does it? But does anybody ever tell you that Jesus in the New Testament talks much about more about hell than he does about heaven? Have you ever read where Jesus talks about the wrath of God in the New Testament? See, the wrath of God is a reality in the Old Testament. The wrath of God is a reality in the New Testament. And Jesus says in John 3.36, He says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Well, that's really good stuff. And then He says this, But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. He doesn't say it will abide on him. He says it is on him now. Make sure we mark that down. It's not in the future that wrath is going to be upon a person who doesn't believe in Christ. It's already upon that person. So this wrath is real. And the reason for this wrath, Moses goes further. This, this Psalm, Psalm 90 is written by Moses. He says this, verse 8, You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. So the reason God is angry with man is because man has sinned against him and these sins are in his presence, in his eyes. We may try, as it says in Psalm 139, to do our sins in the darkness, but it says that when we do our sins in the darkness, the darkness is like light to God. He brings them out in the light. Now, there are many illustrations, but let's just make sure we get what we're talking about. Adam and Eve, they walked into that garden. They took the tree of which they were not to eat. And then they went and hid themselves when what should they have done? The first thing they should have done is rushed back to God and said, we have done this. But what did they do? They hid. Did anybody teach them that? How did they learn to do that? They just did it. They did that. And God comes to them and says, Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? He brought their sin out into the light. 
Cain goes and kills his brother Abel, and he's asked this question by God. Where is your brother? And Cain didn't go, God, listen, I killed him, and here's the reason why. He didn't do that. He says, am I my brother's keeper? (laughs) And then the Lord said, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Achan, Achan, he, he was told not to take anything at the battle of Jericho. And he took things that belonged to God. He stole from God. And then Achan, he believes that he's going to get away with it. And he's got, he's got some gold. He's got some silver. He's got some clothing hidden under his tent. <laughs> he thinks he's going to get away with it. And Joshua calls him out. And he says, show it to us. Give glory to the Lord and tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me anymore. His secret sin was brought into the light. We can talk about King David. King David, think about this. Don't do this, folks. Don't do what I'm about to say. David goes and sins go up, up a storm. And he does what? He, does, he doesn't come and tell God he sinned. He goes and tries to cover up his sin. And for nine months, he won't confess his sin. Don't do that. <laughs> but he did it. I hope it, maybe he did it because some of us sometimes are just so foolhardy that we do something like this. And so then this man comes along named Nathan, his buddy, his friend, puts his bony finger in his face. You did this. And then he pours it out. We need to remember, Jesus said, whatever we, you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetop, housetops. I read the story about a little girl who went to a birthday party. She saw her friend getting all these wonderful gifts. And she got this one beautiful doll, and she was so loved with that doll. And so she made sure while, while she was doing other presents and taking care of other things, she got the doll, and she went into another room, and she closed the door, and she was trying to put the doll into a chest of drawers. It's not a chest of drawers. It's a chest of drawers. And so she's trying to hide the doll, and a man walked in, and she turned around, and she smiled, and she acted like she hadn't done anything wrong. Nobody had to teach her that. Nobody had a teacher to hide her sin. Our greatest need is to have God's wrath removed from us because it's a reality. Old Testament, New Testament. And, and Moses continues in verses 11 and 12. Listen to these words. Who understands the power of God's wrath? He says, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. The question is, how can I present to God a heart of wisdom? We have to keep reading. He goes on and he says in verse 14, listen to this. Satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. You see, the same God who's full of wrath against sin is also a God of mercy towards those who come to him. He says, how? Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Well, here's how. Here's a God. Remember when we pray that those words in our prayer of confession. He says this when we pray these words. Um, I'm looking at the wrong, my wrong sheet of paper here. Um, here we go. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. We have done those things which we ought not to have done. There's no health in us, but thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. 
We are miserable offenders, and yet we can come to a God who says, I'll have mercy on you if you come to me. That's exactly what he's saying here in the psalm. God is a God of wrath. God is a God of loving kindness. And you and I, we can bring our sins out into the open and ask God to forgive us. What should we do? What is the wisest thing when we realize we're underneath the wrath of God? What's the wisest thing that you and I can do when we've taken gold and silver and clothing and shoved it under a tent? What's the wisest thing we can do when we've taken little dolls into rooms and tried to hide them from everybody else? What's the wisest thing we can do if we're Jonah and we've gone down to Joppa and we've bought a ticket and we're on our way to Tarshish when we're supposed to be going to Nineveh? What's the the wisest thing we can do? The wisest thing we can do is say, I'm sorry. The wisest thing we can do in the words of our confession is acknowledge that I have sinned and acknowledge the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. That comes right out of our, what, what is it to repent? Both of them. Both of them. Don't just look at your sin. Don't just look at where you've been bitten, but look at the pole where the serpent is, that if you look at the pole, you're saved. Look at the sin and look at Jesus who saves us from our sin. This is what we are to do with all of our sins. And this sacrifice Jesus has made for us takes care of these sins. He was punished for every hidden doll. He's punished for every one of those secret thoughts that we left unconfessed for nine months. He was punished for when we went to Tarsus instead of Nineveh. But you cannot hide your sin. If we do hide our sins, we're liars. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say that we have not sinned, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if, 1 John 1.9, all of you know this, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So take all of your sins, place them out in front of Jesus Christ, confess those sins, forsake those sins, and live now under God's glory, now and forever. Well, that's our first, that's our greatest need. But our second, one of our other needs that we have here is this, to have fellowship with other believers. And one of the things that I've been bringing out to you, and I'm going to do it again, I want you to remember this every time you look at Philippians, is koinonia. (laughs) We're talking about fellowship. We're talking about sharing together. And you and I, when we come into this place, one of the things we do is we leave the place. What we've learned from the apostle is this. We are to conduct ourselves as we leave the worship in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we face the world, we do so shoulder to shoulder. As we face the world, we do so with one one purpose, to glorify God, to preach the Lord Jesus Christ and share Him with all those in the world. But when we come, I always think about this. Everybody looks this way and you're kind of shoulder to shoulder. But when we get done, folks, we're going to drink coffee. When we get done, we're going to talk to each other. When we get done, we're going to go over to the Sumter's house and sing some hymns. When we get done, we're going to have Bible studies over here. When we get done, we're going to talk to each other. We're going to talk to each other on the phone. And we're going to keep these conversations going. How are you going to keep a marriage relationship going? This week I had uh, some marriage counseling with these kid, these two kids. They're kids, man. They're 20, guys. Y'all don't get mad at me. 20s. Y'all don't, that's young, isn't it? <laughs> I said, what are y'all doing right now to be in love? Well, we do this and we do this and we drink coffee and we we talk and we this and we that and we read the Bible together. And Well, uh, let me just give you a little secret. You have to keep doing that after you get married. You don't just go 
get your meal at night, watch a TV show and go to bed. You, you keep the same thing going, the same thing you were doing before you got married. You do that after you get married. We have to get our corporate act together, Paul would say. You and I are to work out our salvation as a corporate people, not just me, my Bible, and myself in a room. This is how we do it. And he says this, he says in verse 21, he says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. He says, everybody who comes to you, greet them. You remember, remember, let me put it in these words. Paul's saying, you remember how you greeted me when I first came 10 years ago? You greeted me. You received the gospel I preached to you. A whole new church started. I want you to greet everybody who comes to you just the same way you greeted me. And then in obedience to his own command, he begins to pass out greetings from all those folks in Rome. He gives three things. He says this. He said, he sends greetings from those who are with him. So Paul sends this letter back to Philippi from Rome. And he's, he's giving greetings from those who are with him in close quarters with him, like maybe Luke. And then he gives another one. He says he sends greetings from all the saints. And surely that means all the saints who are on the rolls of the church there in Rome. So, hey, greetings from those closest to me. Greetings from all those on the roll of Rome, the Roman church. And then he says this, those of Caesar's household. Now, some people think that that might mean some actually fam- family members of Caesar. But for sure it means the staff. And if you remember when we, we studied in the past, we said that he is between two crack soldiers. The guys that, that are sitting with Paul, they're the, some of the best soldiers. And so there's staff among the house of Caesar who would be related to some way in some military way with those men in uh, Philippi. These men had served the Caesar. These men down in Philippi, they're retiring on their pensions and they're, they're down there maintaining Roman culture, right? And they serve the, the great Caesar, but they also are hearing from their brothers in Rome. They also are part of the family, or they are citizens of heaven. Greet those who are saints who come to you, even as we send greetings to you from Rome. One of the things that I would applaud our congregation for is welcoming people into this church. You you think, well, that's no big deal. Well, let me tell you something. We had a lady that went back to Florida, (laughs) and she made little packages like that back there with those coffee cups in it and did exactly the same thing in her church that we're doing here. Welcoming people, greeting people at the door. You think, oh, that's not a big deal. Oh, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. It's a big deal to talk to each other. It's a big deal to sit down and drink coffee to each other. It's a big deal to keep the conversation going. Let me ask you one question. We'll go to the next thing. What loyalties do I need to detach myself from so that I can honor my superior loyalty to Jesus Christ and to my brothers and sisters in Christ? Are there any things that I need to detach myself from so that I can fulfill this Superior loyalty. Well, finally, let's end with this. Another one of our great needs is to have perseverance. I want you to go out of here. I want you to go out of here understanding that there's somebody who's for you. Paul looks at these people and he says, Will God not also meet every one of your needs? 
Will God not supply your every need just as He has supplied mine as you have sent gifts to me from, uh, you know, through your minister, Epaphroditus? And I think that's how you say it. Um, but listen, the greatest need, here's this great promise. You have a great need and this is it. You need to persevere. You see, when he says, will God not also meet all your needs? It doesn't give you justification, O Philippian church, to take your billfold down to the river and throw it in the water and quit your job and say, God, here I am, supply all my needs. That's not what he's saying. Now, that's a fanatic for you. But listen, man, I, I had, when I went to my first church I ever went to, I remember I'm talking to a man who's over 50 years old and he quit his job because people were cursing and I could not, I was about to pull my hair out. You've got to have a job so that you can eat. And so here, here you are, this guy, he goes, and, and I'm, I'm trying to tell him, you need a job. And so we don't give up our job. And so he says, my God's going to supply all your needs, but what are you going to do? You pray and say, God, you're going to supply all my needs, and then I'm going to go out and I'm going to work. I'm going to be, I think John Owen said it like this, you pray and God, always expect for God to use you to, 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 uh, to answer the prayer that you've just prayed. How, how, how might God use you to answer the prayer you've just prayed? We pray for perseverance and we get up and we persevere. And when we, are per, when we find ourselves persevering, we look back and we say, I'm persevering because God's preserving me. I'm, I look at God who preserves people and I think to myself, how do I know I'm being pres- preserved? Because I'm out here, I'm out here pres- being, doing things. I'm out here obeying. I have God at work in me. You know, um, sometimes people say, I'm so tired. I am so tired. I need encouragement. When I was growing up, there were only two types of sunflower seeds. You know that? Only two types. They were flavored, they were salted, and they were unsalted. And so when you went to the store, you just had two choices. I went to the store years ago and I saw at least 34 choices for sunflower seeds. You know what? You know what? Sometimes people are saying this is a real thing. Decision fatigue. I see. Yeah, see, I mean, it's like some of you guys, y'all are educating me. Decision fatigue. It used to, I, I remember I went and did a presentation for the hospital on time management. And the data back in 1998 said that every CEO is interrupted six times per hour. <laughs> Don't you think six times in an hour? Oh, that's a lot. Six times eight, 48. I still remember my math, my multiplication. 48 times. Folks, listen. While I'm preaching, my watch sometimes starts going off. Do I answer it? Well, now you know the answer to that. I don't answer my phone when my Sometimes I forget to turn all the little bells and whistles off. It used to be that we rode a horse and visited people. It used to be that we would get a phone call. But now there's text messages, there's emails, there's Facebook. And I'm, I don't even know all these things that can go off while you're doing your work. Right, Mr. Kutzer? Decision fatigue. Now, um, I need to learn how to decrease some of this stuff. Obviously, 
I need to learn how to say no to some of this stuff, obviously. But we have to face it. We have more decisions being brought in front of us no matter what we do than ever before in history. And you and I, we need... We need the Lord to stand with us the same way He stood with Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4. When everybody had abandoned Him, the Lord stood with Him. We need that. We need to know that the Lord will send a Jonathan to us when Saul can't find him. Can't find David. Saul can't find David. 3,000 men can't find David. But Jonathan found him. (laughs) How is that? Because God sent him. All his, his own men are ready to kill him. And God knew David needed encouragement. Jonathan found him. And you and I, we need encouragement to stay the course. And God has brought you here this morning to hear this man preach a sermon. And to say these words, be strong and courageous, each one of you. Do not tremble or be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I always think, every day I meditate on this, why did Peter, why is the denier in heaven in glory and why is Judas the betrayer in hell? Let me tell you why. You know why? Both of them are terrible sins. Do you know that? Both of those things are terrible things. Jesus told Simon Peter, he said, God is going, I mean, Satan is going to take you like a shaker in California. I don't know if you know what a shaker is, but it, it's a big machine. The kiddos used to take me and say, watch this, Pastor Mark. Watch this, Pastor Mark. They get in that, that machine, $180,000 machine. Got a really nice air conditioner on the inside. They're out there in the heat. And this thing's got like pliers that reach out to the tree and grab hold of it and shake the daylights out of that tree. The dust goes up. All the money falls on the ground. The nuts are hitting the ground. And they go to one tree after the next. Shaking Simon Peter till he's out of his mind. And he denies Jesus three times. But you know what he says about that to, to Simon Peter? He says, but I have prayed for you. Why is Simon Peter making it? Why is Simon Peter repenting with tears in his eyes and one goes off and hangs himself? Why is, what's the difference? Jesus says, I have prayed for you. Why are you here today? Why do you keep persevering today? Why are you going on today? It's only because Jesus is praying for you. Only. That's why. He's working. His Spirit is working in you. I don't know. I I look at Jonathan. I look at David. And I think to myself, these men had 13 years of God just pushing them through a mold. Carving on them. Cutting on them. Can you hear David saying, I just can't pray one more day in this cave. I can't take one more day of this. Can you hear Paul saying, I just don't want to sit between these two prisoners anymore. It's just too dark. It's too dank. It's too stinky. I don't want any more of this. But you are. You're here. Because Jesus' prayers are being answered. Jesus is praying you through your traumas. Jesus is praying you through your agonies. In every one of those prayers, He prays for you. When you think you can't make it, you are making it because His prayers are being answered. Well, we have the greatest promise from the greatest God who meets our greatest needs. Verse 19, just back to verse 19. According to His riches and glory 
in Christ Jesus, if God will give up his best, then won't he supply you with all the things you need for this life and even for eternity? We're not going to be dissatisfied as we continue to walk with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity again to be with your people and to worship you. We thank you for this great promise that's connected to all the other promises in your word. We thank you for being the greatest God. and We thank you for meeting our greatest needs. We praise you for taking care of the wrath of God by providing for us a Savior. We thank you, Father, for teaching us to walk with you and to persevere all the way to glory. Remind us always that we have a Savior who's not uh, sitting around twiddling his thumbs, but even now is interceding for us that we might persevere all the way to glory. Will Help us remember this, and we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.